Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to the Pause Reviews podcast. I'm your host, Frank. And before we jump into this week's episode, I just wanted to give a little disclaimer and ask for your patience because we are A, recording this episode early again, which means there's a whole lot more noise in the house. And B, we're also giving having a guest host another shot. And we're still dialing that in and trying to find out the system and the workflow that works best so that we can keep having guests on the podcast in the future. So bear with us. It isn't perfect, but uh, hopefully you'll still enjoy the show and forgive us our learning curve and noisy children. Thanks again for your patience. Let's start right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Paused Reviews. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Pause Reviews Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Frank, joined by my trusty co-host, Tim. How's it going, Tim? Spooky time's winding down, so I'm a little, I'm a little depressed. I'm not. I'm super excited. And this week, we are also thrilled to welcome a guest host with us today, Rob. Thanks for joining us this week, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. What's your uh, thoughts on October, Halloween, spookiness? Are you a super fan like Tim or uh, a more reluctant <laughs> oh participant my like myself? Well, I'm old now, but when I was a young lad, man, I used to tear into this this whole month. I loved it, and I still do, but uh, <laughs> I miss the old days when kids were just everywhere. Those were, I mean, it was fun. It was fun when I was a kid, and now yeah. I'm just, eh, I don't know. Man, I, yeah. I bought... I bought thirty plus dollars of candy at Target yesterday, with the idea of putting them in Ziploc bags and putting them out on Saturday night, in hopes that nobody actually comes, and then I just get to eat it. And all. then you eat it all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't need Halloween to buy thirty dollars worth of candy. That's <laughs> no, just a that. that's just a Wednesday. <laughs> Let me make you a goodie yeah. bag, so when you stop by <laughs> later this week, you can have some. <laughs> yeah. I'd hate to deprive you, Tim. <laughs> Let's jump into this week's episode, guys. We are winding down our month of October and uh, being fully focused on horror movies, which has taken a major toll on me physically, emotionally, (laughs) psychologically. And we are closing out the month with our Halloween special. And we're talking about The Conjuring. It's going to be another deep dive, uh, similar to the two that we've done earlier this month. We're going to give a little bit of history behind the movie. We're going to talk about the movie and then do a little fact versus fiction. Should be interesting should be fun and let's just dive in as always spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to hear spoilers we are going to talk about this movie and we're going to talk spoilers so uh if if that's something you're not into give this a pause go check out the movie come back after you've seen it we are also marking this episode explicit as we have done with all of our october episodes that isn't because we're doing anything over the top just simply the nature of what we're going to be talking about paranormal stuff possession all that kind of jazz maybe not something you want kids hanging around while you listen so that's the deal with that um I mean, I can curse. you can you can curse um we could go darn it we could go i haven't taken that opportunity i haven't taken that opportunity dude (laughs) speaking extended to me speaking of cursing uh it doesn't tim just our guests (laughs) (laughs) you keep your shirt i get free reign i can say whatever i want that's right we could cut rob out and no one will ever know he wasn't here (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, speaking of cursing though, with this movie, I didn't, have, I don't have this in my notes, but it just really stuck out to me. There is a, the exorcism scene. I mean, we'll get to the, the meat of the movie in a second, but there's a bit of an exorcism scene in this one. And yep. when Ron Livingston is just losing his mind and just keeps yelling, God damn it. God damn this. And I'm like, is that what you want to be yelling during an exorcism? I don't know. It just, it felt out of place. So The Conjuring, where can you watch it? Uh, it's actually available now through AMC+. Plus. I know, another subscription service. They do offer a seven-day free trial, so if you want to sign up, check out the movie, check out the podcast, and then cancel it, more than welcome. Amazon Prime also has uh, a deal right now where you can rent it for a buck ninety-nine or purchase it for ten bucks. The Conjuring was released July 19th, 2013, and it's rated PG-13, which again, after that family-friendly episode Tim and I just did... It's hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious to me that Sleepy Hollow is rated R. Uh, yeah. Um, it's directed it by really? it, dude. Yeah. We wow. we went on a tear because we've watched pretty much every horror movie we've watched in October has been rated PG thirteen and has some wild stuff in it. Sleepy Hollow has nothing and it's rated R. Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow is rated R. That is yeah. a fact. Yep. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It's uh, directed by James Wan, who has a rich, steep history in the genre. He yeah. directed Saw, Insidious, Insidious 2, The Conjuring 2. He's a he's a strong director, strong, strong storyteller, and has a rich background in the genre. So it seems like a yeah. good pick for this one. Yeah, I mean, say what you will about the Saw franchise as a whole and kind of the bastardization of that franchise after the first one. The first one was pretty unique when it came out like that movie struck me and didn't rely so heavily on that murder weapon <laughs> machine mechanism that it's and ultimately famous for that first one stands out quite differently oh yeah that's the only one he helmed he was a producer on all the subsequent ones but yeah, it makes so much sense yeah the movie was written by twin brother team chad and carrie hayes they also have written movies like house of wax the the remake obviously <laughs> the reaping whiteout the Conjuring and The Conjuring 2. So, and not as much success there, but still, you know, versed in the genre. This movie did really well. I mean, like, yeah, surprisingly is, well. I'd have to double take those numbers because I was like, whoa. Listen, it's if you're wondering how the Conjuring franchise was launched, it is this movie. Yeah. Um, but it did well not only in terms of the numbers and the money, but also critically. It has some pretty solid Rotten Tomato scores. And budget-wise, it was $20 million to make, and it raked in just under $320 million. <laughs> So a massive, massive blockbuster success. Because they lied to everybody and said it was PG-13. <laughs> Dude, that's so, that's so true. What is this movie about? So the movie follows Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are well-known paranormal investigators, investigating this one haunting in particular in Rhode Island, uh, where the Perrin family had moved into an old farmhouse and is being traumatized and attacked by these evil entities, one in particular, the ghost or the spirit of uh, what they believe to be a witch named Bathsheba. So the movie follows some of the events that happen in the house, but really focuses mostly on how the Warrens handle it, treat it, and their role in it. And like most horror movies, this one especially claims to be based on true story. Mm -hmm. I think you could paraphrase this, though, as what it's really about is do your homework before you buy a home. 
<laughs> if there's a hidden cellar, you should know. Yeah. <laughs> and if you discover that on the day that you move in, you just you just leave. Dude, that's a big nope. So, yeah, I think one of the one of the things I was reading is that uh, Rhode Island does not have a disclosure for haunted houses. For, so. I was I was oh, yeah. I was reading that exact thing, and it was they do not have to disclose hauntings, but I think you do have to disclose hidden square footage in the basement, right? right? Like, <laughs> let's dive into a little bit of the backstory and and a few facts about this movie. And, and the first thing that I feel like we really got to touch on is who exactly are Ed and Lorraine Warren? If they're yeah. not names you've heard. Heard, you're definitely familiar with some of the cases that they have investigated and been a part of. The Warrens were a married couple, famous paranormal investigators, practicing from the early 50s until their deaths. Ed died in 2006 and Lorraine died surprisingly recently in 2019. Yeah. Ed Warren was a World War II vet and police officer who became a self-professed and self-taught demonologist. And what I read was is that I guess this started as a kid he claims to have grown up in a haunted house and this you know spurred the interest in him to to follow this profession i guess we'll say Okay. <laughs> Lorraine Warren was also self-professed, but as a clairvoyant and a light trance medium. I mean, what I'm really getting from them, what I'm really wanting to stress about Ed and Lorraine Warren is there is no, and I can't speak to what the, the availability is for professional training in, in <laughs> demonology or whatever, but, you know, anyone can claim to be anything, Anyone can say they've taught themselves to do anything. Yes, uh, not a lot of weight behind this. With all this self-proclamation, in 1952, the couple founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, or NESPER. The couple has investigated and written about some of the most well-known hauntings in the world, including the Annabelle Haunting, Amityville, the Enfield pol Poltergeist, the Snedeker House, and of course, this what the, the story that this movie is based on the Perrin family. What is that where you, you get the Emmy and the Oscar and all the, like, the, the EGOT? The yeah, yeah, that's the ego of paranormal activity. <laughs> yeah, they're they're just one away. Now the Warrens, even given all of this exposure and I guess success, have also been surrounded with a lot of controversy and doubt. Right, so they have a ton of critics, and many of their critics state that their claims are at best meaningless ghost stories and at worst dangerous fraud. Scientists, doctors have put much of their evidence to the test and found it to to be lacking and just not at all compelling. The Warrens, being members of the Catholic Church, have always defended their claim, saying that their critics don't base anything on the existence of God. So that's kind yeah. of their blanket statement to anyone who criticizes them. Yeah, it, I think, you know, as you said earlier, you, you should know who they are. I mean, to me, it's a, like if you follow any sort of paranormal stuff, you know their names, right? You're familiar with this stuff, right? And to clarify, and what I meant was, if you don't know their names, I, you've heard the stories. Like, if you don't know yeah. the Warrens, you know Amityville. Even if you me, don't like horror movies, I feel like you know that. Yeah, but to me, I'm like, oh yeah, I think at one point in time, they were on a pedestal, right? I mean, if you, mm. what we, if you watch this movie, and you have watched any sort of ghost show on the Travel Channel or on Sci-Fi, you know, most famously Ghost Hunters, I think, or any of those um, those types of things. A lot of the stuff that they do in this movie is stuff that 
they still do today in quote unquote paranormal research, you know, setting up cameras and audio equipment and things like that. So this feels really familiar to you, you know, watching the stuff that happens that even though it's 1970. Mm-hmm. And I think at one point in time, be it the heyday of their 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 investigations, the 70s, and then when they set up this paranormal museum after that, where all of this stuff that you see in their collection exists today, they enjoyed this period of prominence in the field of paranormal research. But I think today, you know, that controversy has now come around again to them and, and caught up where, where they're a little bit less revered. There's a little bit more tarnish on that pedestal, you know, than maybe they had in their heyday. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of that. You know, I think about the the time of when spiritualism really started to, to yeah. take hold and, and, yep. and the belief in these things. And a lot of people really had a ton of people convinced that this stuff was real. I, I can think about the sisters who would come Yeah, with the tapping when it was really just one of them cracking their toes yeah. or whatever. And you yep. know, it was this was there was just something about people wanted to believe in this stuff. I feel like after the fascination with the occult started to wane a bit Mm -hmm. it it really it falls apart very quickly and you mentioned the museum the oddities and i have this in the notes later on it doesn't really fit anywhere but i just it made me laugh so hard it kind of encapsulates this idea right because there's a scene very early in the movie where ed warren is giving a tour to a reporter of his museum and explaining what the stuff is right here's you know here's annabelle and here's all this other kind of stuff the guy is actually asking specifically about Annabelle and if mm-hmm. the doll itself isn't possessed then why does it need to be locked up etc and Ed Warren makes a comment about how you know sometimes it's just better to keep the genie in the bottle yep. and it's a passing statement but then at the end when he brings the artifact from the parent house and he puts it on a shelf there's a lamp there he puts it next to a lamp and I remember watching it being like wait a minute does he have an actual genie <laughs> like, like what is going on and i think it just that whole thing that whole idea bringing like a, a treasure from each thing clearly to build up this museum it just really for me like reinforced this idea that if you really look just a little bit under the surface stuff really starts to feel hokey and cheap yeah. and and just not really real 100%. maybe it lives in the disney universe it's it's actually tied into aladdin now <laughs> It's like the uh, the Pizza Planet truck. He's he's the diamond in the rough. <laughs> Will Smith pops out. <laughs> I, don't worry, guys. I got it from here. My favorite is that that's the genie you went with. <laughs> that's that's my best. That's my favorite part. The, the only one. <laughs> Just kidding. Robin Williams fans that want to kill me. Oh yeah, Tim might have a word or two to say about that. Yeah, don't 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 hate on my almost uncle. Oh no. Robin Williams is a national treasure. But it wouldn't have been funny if I had said his name. No, that's right. Now, in terms of controversy related directly to their work as paranormal investigators, and I specify that because there's a lot of other controversy circling the Warrens, and especially Ed Warren. But in terms of their work specifically as paranormal investigators and mediums, there was, seems to be nothing more damning than what was surrounding the Amityville Horror, which is yeah. perhaps their most famous case and the one that has you know sparked the most media attention through films and, and other iterations, books, whatever. The film is based on the Warrens' investigation in the mid-70s, which uh, you know first launched the book, the Amityville, the Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, upon which the film is based, etc. The story led to a major court case where the claims made by the Lutz family 
and the Warrens were refuted by several eyewitnesses, investigators, forensic evidence, and the major blow came when the attorney William Weber confessed that he, Jay Anson, the writer, the Warrens, and the Lutzes, the families living in the house at the time, had invented the horror story over many bottles of wine. This whole thing has cast a huge shadow over any of the claims made by the Warrens. And that, coupled with, like I mentioned, some of these other allegations against the family, have just really worked to sort of hamper their status as any kind of expert. And and that's just a frustrating thing in this this realm of paranormal investigation. Um, If you want to take it a a step further and, and talk about cryptozoology, it's, you know, there are people out there that believe in the validity validity of this work like there is in any profession there are good honest people <laughs> quote unquote trying to make the, you know this get recognition for this stuff and you have a, a, an instance like the warrens and this sets that field back right you know you're maybe going to mm-hmm. get some legitimacy um and now you're back to that realm of of you know hokey folklore you know pseudoscience for sure i think of all the things you could have done over a bottle of wine that's pretty Pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, right, <laughs> dude. Like you said, I like how it was many bottles of wine, though. Like, many. like, how many did they need to get to before they're just like, I got it? If we, if you're gonna commit fraud by claiming <laughs> by claiming that houses are haunted and all this other kind of stuff, do it the way the Warrens did. Their stories and claims have inspired dozens of films, series, and documentaries, including 17 films in the Amityville Horror series and mm-hmm. seven and counting in the Conjuring universe. Yep. All told, the Conjuring franchise alone, we talked about how well this one movie did, right? $20 million and then brought in $320 million. <laughs> The franchise as a whole has raked in over $1.2 billion worldwide. Even with all this, it's, uh, yeah. it's it kinda, got legs. It kind of makes you rethink performance art. It's like, if you think of, and I'm being serious right now, I mm. think of like Dave, David Copperfield, Chris Angel, you know, these people that are masters of illusion. And here these people are coming up with these stories that never be like what you said, you know, t- take a hand and a dip into pop culture. It's right. pretty, pretty epic, actually. Absolutely. So we've talked about the Warrens. Who are the parents? The parents are a real family, and they have generally supported the claims made in this film that their family was targeted by multiple supernatural presences while living in the Rhode Island home. Roger and Carolyn Perrin moved their five daughters to a 200-acre house, a farmhouse, in Harrisville, Rhode Island in 1970. Soon after they moved to the house, the girls began to see and experience spirits, some of which became increasingly more hostile over time, particularly targeting their mother, Carolyn. After all this kind of started, Carolyn apparently or supposedly did research on the property and found records indicating that the home had been the site of dozens and dozens of horrific events. This was the initial claim. Dozens. There were murders, suicides, and all kinds of just terrible things. The worst of which centered around the story of a woman named Bathsheba Sherman, who was accused of being a Satan worshiper and witch in the 1800s. Now, while most of the spirits were harmless, according to the eldest and most outspoken daughter, 
Andrea, it was the spirit of Bathsheba that had attached itself to her mother Carolyn and made her the target of such severe activity. They, and reports are a little bit back and forth, some say they contacted, as in the family, some say family friends, it doesn't matter. Somehow, Ed and Lorraine Warren were contacted to investigate the home, and the Warrens immediately jumped on the opportunity to make the connection between the events they were claiming to experience and the demonic spirit of Bathsheba. There are claims from the family that the Warrens' involvement actually began to make things worse. Prior to their involvement, the family experienced, you know, your fairly standard haunting events, cold spots, <laughs> things moving and disappearing, doors opening, etc. But once the Warrens got involved, things escalated quickly, leading to what they believe was a possession event where Carolyn became possessed by the demonic spirit. And uh, me personally, like, uh, just to kind of touch on this for a second this seems less uh i think it's easy to say you know once they got started and and they started poking their heads into it and and getting involved it made the spirit angry i seem to feel like maybe once the warrens got involved the fish got bigger if that makes sense yeah i mean it's also it's also the ghostbusters argument so i mean that's the that that's the central you know dispute in ghostbusters is that everything was fine until this group of investigators and eliminators comes along and then things get out of whack you know the epa accuses the ghostbusters of fabricating all of this stuff with using chemicals and nerve gas you know it's it's sort of the same thing it's like yeah it's one thing but now you know you have somebody who is a self-professed expert come in and tell you oh no no we're dealing with you know a whole host of crazy things then maybe you buy into it a little bit more you know it's two sides of that i'm not sure hey, hey tim i, I got to respond to that um i <laughs> believe robin williams out of it and you leave my ghostbusters out of it so oh yeah. hey oh ghostbusters <laughs> is my favorite movie of all time so <laughs> so supposedly after that possession event, Roger immediately asked the Warrens to leave the home, and the parents continued to live in the house with the hauntings for nine, ten to, nine to ten more years until 1980 when they moved to Georgia. Again, if you are becoming possessed by um, demon spirits, do you live in the house for another decade? Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's true. That's fair. <laughs> Now, all the five sisters have been very supportive of the film and the events depicted. The eldest, Andrea, has been the most vocal in her support and about the events that took place. In fact, in 2011, she was the first one to speak up and uh, herself wrote and self-published a book chronicling the family's experiences in the home. Uh, the book is titled House of Darkness, House of Light. So I guess Andrea is a self-proclaimed, self-taught writer. <laughs> the middle daughter, Christine, while supportive of her family, has never spoken about the events of the 70s and remains reluctant to discuss them. That is the history behind the movie. We talked about the Warrens, we talked about the parents, we talked a little bit about what was happening in the house. Now let's really dive in to the movie, The Conjuring, and sort of break down what we liked, didn't like, and just really focusing on the critical viewing of this, and is it a solid film? General thoughts, overall impression, was it a good movie? Was it scary? Do you believe it? Let's do this. Uh, let's start with Rob. Rob, what were your thoughts yeah. after watching it? I, I enjoyed it. And I just, uh, I took my film cap off and just watched it as a normal person would. And I enjoyed it. It was uh, definitely got me a couple of times. Um, you know, I was drawn into it. 
My only letdown of the whole movie really was that the guy from the office place didn't ask the Warrens to work on a Saturday or a Sunday. <laughs> I thought that was a huge missed opportunity, you know? Um, <laughs> I kind of, uh, I felt like my only criticism of the movie was really that they focused a little too much on Annabelle kind of throughout the movie. I felt like it was necessary in the beginning to mm-hmm. establish some of the rules that we would you know, come to identify with later on about possession and how it works. But then the continual references to it, I understand that this is part of a, a, a bigger universe. It had like six films. But if I'm just critiquing this as a standalone film, it just kind of got to be like, okay, why do I care about this all so much at the uh, hour and a half mark? <laughs> why do we keep going back to this? Um, yes. that, was, that was really all I had about it. I could go deeper, but I'll let you guys take it from there no i completely agree i i yeah. love that you bring up the annabelle point the fact that she kept coming back was very confusing it, yeah. they, they had a, in the opening scene they expressed how the demon attached used annabelle that annabelle was meaningless but that this one particular demon that was dealing with these kids in the cold open was using the doll for its own purposes are we supposed to then believe that that was Bathsheba? Are we that any demon is drawn to this doll that it would? I don't, I don't know. It, it got really muddy and it just was unnecessary, especially there, not only in the middle, but with one of those end scenes where the doll kind of comes to life and, and attacks the, the Warren's daughter. Yeah. Uh, it's, I think that's a absolutely fair criticism. Um, you know, trying to frame it that it was in one of their lectures, uh, it's fine. But I, I just, it actually confused me for a second because I was like, wait, if I watch in the right movie, I had to pause it. I was like, yes, on the conjuring, like, hold up. Where, 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 I know Annabelle's involved in this, this universe, but I didn't know it was this right story. But, I mean, for me, it was fine. I think I'm going to end up putting this squarely in the middle between the right and the fourth kind. I just spent way too much of the first act. There was just trope after trope for me. I was like, have I seen this movie before? I mean, you look at it and it's a struggling family. It moves into a new old house. They discover a creepy basement. The dog dies first. The youngest makes an imaginary friend. Cue nighttime paranormal happenings. Like I've (laughs) seen this movie a uh, ton. <laughs> I mean, to the point that I may have just described the plot of a number of any different ghost movies. And it felt a lot like Amityville Horror, except in the end, the mom gets possessed instead of it being a thing about the dad. You know, it's right. it was down to the waking up at the same time in the middle of the night. The clock stopped. That was back to Amityville Horror. I mean, we saw that in The Fourth Kind, too. There was something about the 3 a.m., you know, that's when the, the owls were coming to visit. So there's just it was a it was very tropey and i was just having a hard time getting past that and getting any momentum with that because i was like okay this is typical stuff i'm not this is not doing anything for me um i do think the third act did enough to get my blood pumping but there just wasn't enough full throttle horror throughout the whole thing to keep me engaged and i think you know we can we'll come back to that with with the you know where do we how do we feel instead of a horror movie how do we feel it's a true story but it just felt way too similar and really just it reinforced my idea that I'm never buying an old house because <laughs> at the very <laughs> least, it's never going to feel clean. Tim, you just need to find a state where they force people to disclose hauntings and demon presences and poltergeists. I mean, still, though, that house was disgusting. I'm not living in that thing. <laughs> this house is clean. 
I dig on everything both of you are saying. I I think this movie has some real strengths and potential, and I think it has uh, some struggles. I I think that the struggles are really drawn out as you look at the film more critically. Um, But I, I completely agree with Rob, and I saw this movie shortly after it came out, and it really stuck with me. And I remember it being one of the creepiest and most fun horror movies that I had maybe seen in a while. And I think that still holds true. I think there's some really decent elements here. But I also agree that as you really start to dive in, and what I found to be the case for me, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in just a second, is that as I settled into what I thought one story was going to be, in and of themselves, each of these individual pieces were interesting, were engaging, and it sometimes really drew me in. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Annabelle story, the the haunting of the house, the stuff that was happening with the parents, even some of the backdrops and some of the other stuff that the Warrens were dealing with. But they all sort of in the end still felt like individual pieces. I struggled to kind of see all the cohesion, and, and I just felt like what was lacking was this just in the end, it just felt like parts, uh, which I think did it a real disservice. But again, if you take that critical eye out of the equation, and I think if you go into this just looking for a fun horror movie, I do think it delivers that. Uh, and, and so, you know, it can, yeah, can, yeah and it can, it, there's a reason, there's a reason this film launched this massive franchise and, yeah. and that the subsequent films haven't really measured up because I think this is genuinely the most fun and, and the most fright filled and, and really delivers on promises that you would expect going into your standard horror movie. Kind of like what you were saying, Tim, yeah, there's a lot of tropes and there's a lot of you know, the stuff that you expect. I totally got that too. For me, that did influence a little bit about how I felt about it being a true story. You know, it it kind of felt like, you know, this would be, if, if people were sitting around trying to come up with a concept for a horror, these would be the tropes that would immediately come to mind. Things yeah. that you've heard in other places or, or whatever. But again, they also scratch an itch, right? Like, yeah. you know, if, if you go to a concert and they're not playing the hits... You're gonna be pissed. Like you don't, right. you don't want everything to be brand new. And, and so I think this, you know, it hits those marks as well. So the first thing is kind of on that tangent, which is one thing that I did struggle with is that this did feel a little bit less of a as a ghost story and much more of a biopic of the Warrens, which annoyed me because I felt like it really weakened it as a proper horror movie, right? Like. Like I said, I think it had a lot of great potential. It had some really genuine scares. And, you know, I I think about stuff like, you know, just the the creepy moments when the you hear the laughing and the running down the stairs and all the pictures (laughs) fall off the wall or, you know, the bruises and the slamming doors. The the clap game thing I thought was really, really cool. Yeah. The kids playing this clap hide and seek deal, but then the ghosts are using that as communication Dude, that freaked me out. I really liked the actual, actually, the part where I forget exactly which daughter went missing this time, but uh, when they run up to the room and there's, she's not there. The windows are locked, the door shut, and she's completely gone. Yeah, and they use the uh, UV light to like find a hidden panel in the wardrobe, and then 
Lorraine falls all the way to the basement through the like in between the walls of the house. I was like, did not see that coming. There were definitely some really intense moments with that kind of stuff. And the way they used the music box and the and the mirror in the music box, how the ghost, the little boy would present in that mirror once the music yeah. stopped. And yep. there were some really, really, really cool elements. I guess what I'm getting at, what I struggled with is that as soon as you start to settle into that and really get invested, yes. then it like it cuts away and then we're watching the Warrens investigating another thing and debunking it and the Warrens doing this or X, Y, and Z or pulling us back to Annabelle in a, in a way that doesn't really make sense. And I felt like they yep. were just focused so much on the Warrens that it made the, the haunting and the Perrin family story feel very just jagged and i felt like it would jump from minor things to then just like really fast forwarding to becoming a really unexpected exorcism movie and i i had a hard time at, at points kind of following the thread of how we got there what do you guys well, think and i think i think even going off of that we spent that much time with the warrens and i still didn't necessarily care that much you know that that was a big part when we get to the end where ed is like i have to do the exorcism but i won't do it if you're in the room and like he mentioned something that like she's and she's sensitive it's easier for you know the ghosts and spirits that to attach themselves to her but i just wasn't that attached to them you know what i mean like as much time as we did spend and and jumping back to their story i just didn't really care I'm going to be the guy that goes against the grain here yes, uh, for the sake of good entertainment. Yeah, do it. I, I actually am cool with that. I felt like, you know, I kind of tried to think about it from the filmmaker's perspective. And I felt like seeing the movie through the eyes of the Warrens to a degree helped. I think they made a clear decision that they wanted to tell the story as though this were fact. This really happened. Okay, no ands, ifs, or buts. They, they believe it wholeheartedly. And they had to get us as an audience behind that. So they had to uh, instill confidence that we trust these people, you know, and do that by opening with a setting of them, you know, dealing with the Annabelle case. And then they're in a in a college, you know, speaking to students, I think is I think what they were doing. And they're so they're in a position of power. They're also kind of joking about themselves, saying that they've been called frauds. So they establish that they're self-aware of who they are. Um, There's that scene of the of. Uh, Ed protecting his daughter in the room, you know, shooing her out, making sure that she's safe. So we see he's protective. He cares. Um, And I felt like that kind of it was at the very least a fresh, interesting perspective on this genre, you know, where normally we would just fall to the family. But none of us have ever been through possessions. I don't think so. And so not yet. Not not yet. But we can hope. We can hope. We can hope. We can. Yeah, there's still time. (laughs) Halloween's this weekend. Um, But, you know, I I can't really relate too much to being, you know, having my hand scolded by some demon. But I can relate to the idea of someone wanting to protect and care for others. So for me, at least, maybe I'm a different type of horror viewer. I kind of enjoyed that story, that aspect. It, It lulled me in to believing this more. Mm. I like I like how you put that and and I definitely agree with you and I think following the Warrens does make sense. I I feel like we can establish them as the lens a lot faster than we can the family. But I I want to I guess the only the only place I wish I had something and it's not even so much to say I wish I had less of the Warrens. I just I felt like I needed 
a little bit more of a solid footing in exactly who am I following now and, and completely understand we open the film with the Warrens, uh, you know, and, and, and so that is clear, but then we, we really step away from them for a while. Uh, yeah. And I do agree. I do agree with you both on the editing and the pacing issues that are caused by it. I yeah. think, you know, wh- whoever edited this did, did a fantastic job, but there were definitely places where we could have smoothed this out. We could have cut it. I mean, we have no idea what happened. You know, the, pol- the politics of being in the editing room, who decided what. Um, of course. But yeah, I do agree with you guys on that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it would have fixed this, but I think for me, we there is a jump, right? There there feels like there's some missing information that maybe would have smoothed some of this over was that their decision to bring the Warrens in. The family never even really has any sort of discussion about what is happening here. I think you you get that big scene where where the dad comes back he from one of his long haul trips and you know his daughter's convulsing and the do- mom was locked in the basement and not too long after that the warns just show up there's never a oh you think our new house is haunted no it can't be you mean they just like it, the the film makes it look like off the bat they're like oh, we're calling the warrens like you know it's going back to what frank said everybody yeah. knows the warrens so we see the mom yeah. go to the lecture we see carolyn uh you know speak to the warrens and ask them to come to the house but but Wait, why we do oh yeah did you miss that yeah yeah that existed <laughs> that existed. There's a scene. So right after the scene you're talking about, Tim, where the dad comes home and things really escalate, the Warrens are giving a lecture at a university and uh, Carolyn is in the audience watching the footage they're showing. What? And when the Warrens go when the Warrens go back to their car to take their little sabbatical or whatever, because Lorraine has had this event that's where she approaches them and says can you please come to my house they're reluctant at first and then she begs and begs and they agree to come because yeah. uh because lorraine feels the presence and, and and wants to help them i have no recollection of that scene whatsoever what'd you do you fell asleep I, you fell asleep i finished well, that, this movie at six o'clock and it is seven twenty-seven. It was right before Walter Peck tried to turn off the. Uh, the ghost <laughs> Did you miss that scene too? No, no, I know that yeah. part. Well, wow, I'm just All glad right. Tim, because because it's fresh in Tim's mind, so maybe right. <laughs> yeah, there is a whole scene, but but that doesn't change the what took her there. And I'm not saying that information is wholly important. Yeah, like yeah. you know the transitions exist, and, and Rob, I totally agree with you that there's a little work you could do to really make this better. It doesn't necessarily mean it's like wholly lacking. I just felt like, you know, and even with the Lorraine yeah, thing, yeah. you know, yeah. we we don't dive enough into some of the really like rich details that could be fun, uh, you know, in terms of the why for the parents, but also a lot of the background for the Warrens, right? Like this yeah. whole, this event that took place, we get a, we get a, a, a two sentence, you know, little bit of exposition that's like, oh yeah, every time she does something, it takes a little piece of her and right. we had a really bad one and she's never talked about it and I'll never ask. Well, it's it's really driving a huge 
plot point in this movie. Like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. There's there's just some some areas where I could have done with a little bit more. And I'm not usually one to say let's make a movie longer, but <laughs> I could have just done with a little bit more. I felt like they could have easily made this longer, but but I, I do, and I think what I'm trying to say, I do kind of respect the risks that they took here. I think we mm. could have watched a you know a poltergeist where you know you you meet the family, you sympathize with the family, and then they call in this strange team to come into the house and for that movie it worked i mean i, I love poltergeist but mm. you try to do that again how many times does that trick work right and and this time around they they decided to go bold you know they juggled a lot of um different you had to introduce the warrens you had to introduce the parents and then you have to also had to introduce the witch who was yes. the witch Ooh. And they kind of tackled all of these introductions, even like 40 minutes in the movie, you're meeting new characters and you're learning about who, what their backstories are. And, and it's a lot. They could have easily cut all that out and trimmed it down and maybe have made it a smoother, cleaner movie. But it also, at least my opinion, might have made it a lot more boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think there's a sweet spot, and I think they kind of hit it. I, I will. I'm glad you brought up the witch. I think that's what's lacking the most. Mm. Like this is the real centerpiece of this haunting, and I felt like it was just sort of glossed over. I, th- I think if we're gonna add any time yeah. cleaning up some of the editing, but enriching that story a little bit because it didn't feel that the heavy. Weren't high enough. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's where I mean, like, I, when they introduced uh, Annabelle in the beginning, I thought that was okay. I was fine with that. The part where, the, you know, they show the room with Annabelle in there, I'm okay with because it shows him being protective of the, the, of the daughter. So it's building him up as a character. Um, beyond that, I felt like they could have replaced any information going forward on Annabelle with information about the witch. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, yes. I, so, so insofar and maybe this is another part of the movie that i just totally forgot and missed uh, but <laughs> probably you, i'm gonna guess probably <laughs> the audience should not believe anything you say at this point. No, <laughs> tim's no, like no, wait no. a minute there's a family that lives in a house <laughs> right um but in, in the end when carolyn gets loose and they find april in the floor they're like she's in the floor and carolyn bursts through the hole and, and is chasing her with the the scissors i believe it's ed he yells the name Bathsheba, and yeah. i was like did we know that was the entity's name like i'm thinking i'm putting my the right hat back on and i'm like the whole exorcism thing you have to get the demon to acknowledge itself as you know get the to speak its name before you can cast it out and i was like did I miss the part where they discovered who the entity was? You did, Tim. You did. You I did. did. Great. You awesome. did. <laughs> is, wait, Tim, did you watch the movie? <laughs> I watched the version that is on your Voodoo account, and apparently... <laughs> Good. So did Rob. <laughs> so there... And it's yeah. it's not... It's not like drawn out, but there is there's a moment where uh, I, I think it's the Warrens are outside and she's talking. Lorraine is telling Ed about Bathsheba and how she hung herself from the tree. I, yeah, and, I remember. Th- I don't well, remember her giving yeah. a name. OK, all the right. Warren, the Warrens, actually, the two of them are up one night after they first go to the house. And I know this clearly because I actually have it playing right now in front of me. And um, <laughs> so so the first time they go meet. The, the parents in that and they see the house 
that night they're at their place doing research homework they're looking right. at photographs they're yes playing, they're playing the tape recording yep, yep. of uh what's what's the the wife's name Carolyn. anyway or carolyn yeah, yeah 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 and they can't hear her part of the recording and that's right. when they're talking about Bathsheba and her history of the house wow. okay that's totally exactly missed right. the name <laughs> yep there we go I think they say her name. I'm pretty positive. Man, I think I think <laughs> I think by the time we're done, Tim's gonna like this movie a whole lot more. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like it sucked. <laughs> I only saw half of it. <laughs> <laughs> It's the funny thing about movies. You see, Tim, you mentioned the first act, and you mentioned the third act. There was a whole second act. What did I do during the second act? Where there was a lot of story and setup. Uh, Stakes went up and down. Conflict came and went. I feel like the kid who got called on and didn't read the material <laughs> and just read the, you know, the foreword, which is about a completely different book. <laughs> yeah, I'll we'll watch the movie. Hilarious though, how funny is this? I thought <sighs> this. Wait, Tim, that didn't actually happen. No, nope. <laughs> didn't. That was actually from Schindler's List. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Schindler's List. I love referencing Schindler's List. It's like the worst movie you could reference in any context. Oh, all right. Um, let's see. Okay, so I, I think I think we've come to a consensus where it's it's a fun movie. There's some great stuff. It could do a little work, but in the end, uh, as long as you're paying attention, a lot of the a lot of the things yep. are laid out. Now there were some movies. I'm going to get a little nerdy, but there were some there were some moments that uh, that did bug me, and it it felt a little bit lazy, like just some quick things that they just chose to throw in their patchwork without really looking too much into it. One is <laughs> this part really made me laugh, which is where we kind of learn a little bit and have some of the exposition about Lorraine's clairvoyance, um, and she she looks at a picture that. They have it's like a family picture at the beach you know she has this little flashback in her mind where she can see the parent family at the beach and and comes out of it and it's like oh what a lovely day at the beach <laughs> and then uh <laughs> and then uh carolyn is like oh, how did you know and she's oh yeah i'm clairvoyant She's actually, she's looking at a picture of the family at the beach. I don't, like, isn't that how pictures work? Like, does that make you clairvoyant? Or did you just see that? I don't know. Like, we, well played. we could have I had mean, a better moment. I mean, you got to set up the ending somehow. <laughs> I could have saved more. I could have done more. Uh, yes, you could have. I, I was also troubled by the use of UV light to find the young daughter's handprints. You were talking, Tim, about when she goes missing upstairs yeah. or whatever, and they're looking for her. They break out this UV light. The cop has no idea what it is, which at first maybe strikes some people as odd. Like, why wouldn't he know? But but this is actually fairly accurate. Um, they break out this UV light, and they start scanning the room, and they see the handprint of the little girl so they can kind of track where she went. This bothered me just because UV light was not used in forensics until the 1970s, and it originated in Canada. Like, it did not come to the U.S. in 1971 when mm. this movie is taking place. So it felt really off that the Warrens would be using something like that in 71 when no one else, FBI, nobody is using it. 
Additionally, yeah. fingerprints, blood, all that kind of stuff. It's not like the movies. They don't just light up when you turn on a UV light. You have to have a solution or a powder that triggers the reaction that makes the latents glow. So none of that happens. They just sort of wave that wand. This isn't really something that's going to bother most people because it is so ingrained. Like we're also used to seeing it in the movies where... Oh yeah, we should turn on the black light and we can see all the semen. But right. it's right. you know that's not really how it works. Um, oh, she wasn't covered in semen. That's what I thought was happening. <laughs> this is Jesus. <laughs> this, uh, but this is just my my little nerd hat. I did the same thing when we talked about hush and the whole my soapbox about you can't just call nine one one and the cops know where you are. This is right. the other thing. You can't just shine a black light and see latents. There's. There's a lot. And they weren't using this readily in 1971. So what you're saying is Room Raiders lied to us back in the day. If you ever watched Room Raiders on MTV and they'd have their little forensic kit with the black light and you would go over the sheets. Not if they not if they sprayed it down first, it would totally work, which is (laughs) why, too, like you can't just like rub your (laughs) finger on the wall and turn on a black light. But if you put like laundry detergent on the wall, it'll glow because the solution has fluorescence that will illuminate under that light. So can, can I just say, I love this part about critiquing films because <laughs> it's just so absurd. Like we just watched a film about possessions, ghosts. Like this chick's skin literally was burning off because she was being moved out of the house. But the part you don't buy into is that's not how UV lights work. I'm really pissed off about that. Yeah. Don't worry, when Rob. The, when, the, when the chick was tied to the chair and she elevated like three feet up, totally cool. But the UV part, no, now I'm pissed. No, no, Just no. Me. We're I mean, getting to that cool. other part. We're getting. You're not gonna, <laughs> if you're not going to get real life right, how can I trust you? <laughs> to do a good job with the supernatural elements. That's so true. How can I buy into any of it if you're not spraying down the room for latents? (laughs) All right, what else? The last thing that bothered me that, again, it totally pulled, and and this is only because I, I knew a bit of the history behind the other stories, but if you're setting this up as a true story and you're setting me up to buy this, this suddenly becomes a totally different thing. At the end of the movie, after we've resolved the stuff with the parents, there's this sort of throwaway line where uh, yeah. they're locking up the, the, the music box in the, in the Hall of Curiosities or whatever in their museum. And as he's walking out, Ed and Lorraine bump into each other. She's like, oh, we got to get going. We've got a call about a case in Long Island. And this is referring to the Amityville case, which is their next huge case. Um, The implication here being that it happens immediately after. And that's just not true, right? So this movie takes place in 1971. Ronald DeFeo Jr., who is the the guy who kills his family in the Amityville Mm -hmm. house, does not commit his murders for another three years in 1974. The Lutz family which is the family the Amityville Horror is about, the ones experiencing the hauntings that are a result of Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s murders, they don't even move into the Amityville house until December of 1975. So we're still like a smooth five years removed from this even happening. 
And this scene just really made the whole thing feel like a franchise setup movie for like this fictionalized reimagining of the Warrens as this like superhero supernatural investigator team and uh, kind of like you know like with Batman like at the end of Batman Begins where he bumps into Gordon he's like oh he left his calling card and, and we're setting up the Joker for the next movie it just feels like we're setting up the next bad guy for our heroes to fight and that just felt super super dumb and and I think it really detracted from any weight that this movie would have had you know, I, I don't yeah. know. I feel like just end it with the parents and let's let's make it about that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's just an issue of of timelines getting messed up, you know, because if we, you know, well, we talked about the kind of the trivia and stuff. They lived in the house for 10 years. So maybe in real time, the 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 Warrens coming to the house. I can't remember. I'm looking through our notes here about when they actually came to them within the life of the house. Maybe that made sense. But I mean couple that with the Annabelle thing, right? You're totally setting this up for what feels like no this franchise. Is the base, yeah. Yeah. You know, this is the, the base movie for our, our Annabelle MCU, you know, plus she's clairvoyant. So, you know, maybe she touched it. <laughs> right. like, oh, we got another case coming up. Yeah, we got another case. I saw we a picture. <laughs> so Tim, you touched about some of the tropes and, and I kind of had that listed as, as a way that this movie is actually successful in hitting those familiar notes. And for me, it kind of gave it a little bit of a sense. It, it just, it gave it an assist at, at sounding a little bit more plausible that it, that it yeah. might actually be true because it's hitting on elements that are consistent with other based on true story horror movies that tend to be more accepted as true mm -hmm. by by a, a larger uh, swash of the population. So the first one is the idea that's presented in the cold open with Annabelle, right? Which is, you know, they're talking about this doll and everything and, and thinking that it's the demon possessing the doll when in fact it's just the demon using the doll. We talked about that. Right. But there's a, there's a line in there where it's like, Nothing starts to happen until those kids bring a medium in to do a seance or whatever it is. And then, boom, that's the door opening up. And we saw that to be true in the right. And we've seen that play out in a lot of these horror movies. And immediately that triggers this. <gasps> like for me watching it, my initial reaction without any sort of critical eye was, oh, that is how it works. Yeah. Right. And so yep. and without diving too deep into, you know, whether or not it is true or not, it immediately fires that synapse that is like, oh, yeah, that's how that happens. This is true. They got that right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that's interesting. And there's there's a lot of moments, right? There's the debunking scene where the Warrens go on that other mission and uh, and, yeah. and you see them like, oh, they don't buy into everything because they're, oh, we found the sound is in the pipes and that coupled with this. And they even go so far as to say, uh, you know, oh, it's rarely a possession or it's rarely a haunting. It's usually right. explainable. Which, yep. again, we've seen that play out in other movies. And then the idea of the clock stopping, it's 3.07 a.m. You know, that's, that's a trope in a lot of things. But these things just sort of hit notes that made sense to me and sort of on the surface made me feel out the gate, oh, this maybe could be. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think I go back to what I said earlier. I just, I just can't shake that feeling. And I think you and I were talking previously 
I just end up feeling like, you know, those bottles, bottles of wine led the Warrens to a really good outline of a story <laughs> and they can just, you know, it's like a Mad Lib. It's like, let's just fill in some, yes. oh, do we have the clocks at 307? We have the clock stopping. We have somebody getting possessed. It's yes. In its own right. If you want to watch this and be scared, I think sure. But there's just parts that just feel like they they fill in the blanks and then they get to the third act and they're like, all right, let's kind of change it up a little bit and let's do some crazy stuff here. But we got to let's do tried and true to get to that point. You know, (laughs) it's I'm still so hung up on on those on those things. I just realized, you know, you know how you know that this is a bullshit story. Hmm. They drank wine. It's the 70s. It wasn't no wine. Right. They were hitting that bong hard. Exactly. That's what happened. The bong's name was wine. It was made out of recycled <laughs> wine bottles. Hey, yo, can you pass me Annabelle? <laughs> it's going to mess you up, man. Yo, that animal strain is sick. Um, this shit's possessed. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fact or fiction, number one, is the story of Annabelle real? And <laughs> these questions are interesting, too, because is it real? Maybe. Um, Maybe. The story of Annabelle does have lore behind it that a lot of people have accepted as true. There has been a ton about this. The, the, the movie that exists in the Conjuring universe is garbage. It strays very far from what the, quote, actual story is. But if you're interested in this doll, it is pretty creepy. There's been a lot of lore podcast. There's books and Mm -hmm. and all kinds of stuff that have touched on this. And this movie actually handles it pretty well. What's depicted in the cold open is very much in line with what is claimed to have happened in real life. And uh, if you're interested, check it out. It's it's absolutely fascinating. If you're if you're into that sort of thing the creepy dolls and that kind of stuff come into life uh you're a chucky fan i would also recommend the (laughs) robert doll story it is or it's super super creepy um but yes there is an element of truth in that uh there's an accepted story uh, about this doll and and they did the warrens did have it in their curiosities locked up it was not a creepy porcelain doll it's just a raggedy ann doll but i don't know maybe that's creepier and actually, they, they still have it in their possession. Earlier in quarantine time, uh, a story was making the rounds on the internet that she had escaped, Annabelle, the, the doll. Um, and eventually, they attribute it to a, a mistranslation. Um, somebody had written an article in Europe about the museum, which due to Lorraine's death last year, and then subsequently COVID-19, the museum is closed. Uh, then they don't know the future of the museum. Their their kids um, I believe it's their son actually is not really sure that he wants to perpetuate the the existence of this museum. It's their son-in-law. They son-in-law. only have the daughter, yeah. Oh, so not sure he wants to perpetuate this. And the translation from whatever it was written in, I forget if it was German or Italian or something, back into English had said um, that Annabelle had escaped. And so this inter- internet was a buzz of the fact that the doll escaped and she's on the loose. Um, she is not. She is locked up perfectly safe and unhappy in her little glass cage. Um, (laughs) But because of the success of these movies, that story burned like wildfire until somebody was like, no, 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 no. It's about the museum being closed. All good. Rob, had you, had you heard about Annabelle before this? Uh, Yeah, I had. And and before we get into this, I want to say, Frank, you got to go a little easy on him. I mean, you only saw half the movie. I only saw half the movie. Um, Yeah, no, I, I, um, it's weird. I've never seen any of these movies from this universe. 
Uh, I'm not, I admittedly am not huge into horror, though I did enjoy this movie. But I'd heard of it, and I had seen, um, I'd seen some pictures of the, the doll in its case, just the way that they represent it in the movie, at least mm-hmm. the, the case. Yep. You said the doll looks different, and I, I believe I remember that to be true. That was it. I just kind of knew it from kind of a, from a distance. Not, not intimately at all, though. <laughs> Had, hadn't heard of the Warrens, shockingly. Wait, you, so you'd heard of Annabelle, but you'd never heard of the Warrens? I didn't even think to care about who these paranormal people were. I mean, I just it was just like, you know, like who who does care? Apparently, everybody. Apparently, I'm the only one that doesn't know. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One point two billion dollars. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, so the next thing that is the focal point of this movie, but they don't touch a lot on, is Bathsheba Sherman. Was Bathsheba mm-hmm. Sherman real? And the answer here is yes and no. There was a woman named Bathsheba Thayer, born in Rhode Island in 1812. On March 10th, 1844, she married Judson Sherman. Bathsheba Sherman gave birth to her first child, a son named Herbert, in 1849. This is important later. It is believed that she had three other children, though none of them lived to be past the age of seven. Yeah. It was also true that Bathsheba Sherman was accused of being a witch when a baby died while in her care. The cause of death was determined to be a large sewing needle driven into the base of the baby's skull. Tasty. Right. Members of the community believed that Bathsheba had sacrificed the baby to the devil. However, due to insufficient evidence, uh, they didn't even go to trial and she was found innocent of any crime. What is not true? Now, while the Warrens told the parents that Bathsheba had lived in the house in the 1800s, she actually never lived there. She lived mm-hmm. next door on the Sherman yep. farm. And keeping in mind that next door, I mean, the the Perrin house, which was the, the Arnold estate and the yep. Arnold farm, was 200 acres. The Sherman yep. farm, equally huge. So they are quite at a distance. So she lived on the Sherman farm, and and this is another element causing skepticism of the story that the Warrens have told. Uh, she was also never hanged or committed suicide as a witch, and her time of death was not 307. In <laughs> fact, it is believed that she died of natural causes in the spring of 1885 at the ripe old age of 73, yeah. uh, and no record that she had ever set foot on the Arnold farm. Nice. Additionally, the parents were never awakened at 3.07 with the clocks freezing uh, on that time. But they do claim, however, that they were awakened every morning at 5.15 uh, to the smell of rotting flesh. So that differs from what is portrayed in the movie. I mean, and in promotion of her book, Andrea and the publishers used a photo of the estate that has people milling about in front of it. And they kind of insinuate that somebody in the center of the focus is Bathsheba, but there is no record of a photograph of her. So it's, it's just, it's insinuation at the most. And, and they choose, it, it, they choose the one person because they're wearing like a face mask. Exactly. And so you can't confirm who it is or isn't. Exactly. So besides the, the historical record of her having existed, there's really no evidence to, to link her to that estate directly. Right. Additionally, with the chin, I told you the kid thing would come in later on. Lots of yep. people have said that all four of her children died mysteriously at a young age, but that is not true. Herbert Sherman lived to an old age, and he worked as a farmer and raised a family in the area. 
And there's, you know, records of that. Um, There's a lot of room for skepticism when it comes to the spirit of Bathsheba. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, Carolyn had been the one who stumbled upon the story of this local woman and the accusations against her. She told Lorraine Warren that one day she found a puncture wound on her calf as if a large sewing needle had impaled her skin. So she had been aware of the story and then she claimed that that had happened to her leg. Lorraine Warren jumped on this. Right. Exactly. Uh, Lorraine Warren immediately jumped on it and said that Bathsheba was the one causing the problems, that she had taken the needle with her to the grave and to the afterlife and was now using it to stab Carolyn in the calf. (laughs) From then on, it was Lorraine who referred to the spirit as Bathsheba. Dude, this sounds absolutely insane to me. The notion that we can take things with us to then use against people in the afterlife is bananagrams to me. Right. Right. Like, why don't we all just like take all of our cash and all this other stuff? And I don't know. That's wild. So it's like the platform and you get to bring one item with you. Yeah. She chose (laughs) a large sewing needle, her weapon of choice. That's her. Yeah. I love that. That's my favorite. Is it was it, is it, do you feel like a regular needle? No, more like a sewing needle. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's like that scene out of, uh, do you remember the, the Prince of Thieves Robin Hood movie? Oh, yeah. And uh, he's like, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. He's like, why a spoon, cousin? It's it'll dull. More. It'll hurt more. It'll hurt more. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Am I the only one who loves Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? <laughs> because uh, no, I do. because I just quoted it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Dude, the old school DVD, I remember you had to flip it. The movie was so long, uh, you had to flip uh-huh. it. Oh, it was that so A&B good. said. Yep. Okay, uh, neurologist Stephen Novella, who is actually the president of the New England Skeptical Society, uh, has investigated the Warrens multiple times in the past. And he's quoted saying that the Warrens are good at telling ghost stories. You could do a lot of movies based on the stories they've spun, but there's absolutely no reason to believe there's any legitimacy to them. I thought that was interesting. So that's Bathsheba's deal and how she got woven into the story of the parents and that house. It immediately casts doubt on the whole basis of this entire thing. Absolutely. Now, the next one is, did the tragedy described by Andrea really happen to families before the parents arrived? And did Bathsheba cause those deaths? So I'm talking about there is there's scenes in the movie where it's implied that Bathsheba kind of like in shining style possesses the mother of every family that moves into this house. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and forces them to kill their children. And so the house is now haunted not only by Bathsheba, but also all the spirits, the mothers, and the children that they killed, etc. Yep. There seems to be some evidence that there were recorded suicides and deaths in the home. However, they all relate to the Arnold family, who owned the farmhouse originally for over eight generations. They put a lot of emphasis, too, on an 11-year-old girl being raped and murdered on the property yeah. by a farmhand, and there's actually no record of that happening on the property. Um, the person they're talking about there... The victim is uh, Prudence Arnold, who was known to have been murdered potentially in Massachusetts, but nowhere near the property in Rhode Island. So, again, some doubt. Yeah, I mean, the the scarier thing for me would be if you had a family home that dates back to, you know, the 1800s and you had a family living there for eight plus generations and nobody had died in the house that would Fact. that would be more concerning to me right? and i think what they say is there was there were two suicides and then uh prudence's death sure and one of them didn't even happen there 
So yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, I, that's that's just the way that those things would have happened when when that was our you know our history in this country, living on the homesteads for so long. The next one was Carolyn Perron really possessed, and did Ed Warren perform the rite of exorcism without a priest? Because apparently the pe- the priests could not be troubled. Um, yeah. <laughs> and this this is also yes and no. In an interview with the Rhode Island Independent, Andrea Perron stated that there was never an exorcism. There was, however, a seance that went horribly wrong. Lorraine Warren has confirmed this and said that an exorcism never took place. Neither she nor Ed would have ever attempted one because they must be performed by a Catholic priest. However, she does say that during the seance, which was led by a medium brought in by the Warrens, Carolyn Perone did become temporarily possessed. And just to pause here and to talk about, like, we talked about this a lot, uh, the episode that we did about the right. Yeah. And, and this idea that the Catholics believe that practicing the occult opens up doorways and invites these demonic spirits in and can allow yeah. you to become open to possession and all this kind of stuff. So these are paranormal investigators who also are uh, practicing Catholics. That's, that's, their, that's their jam. That's their deal. Yep. Why would her approach be to perform these occult practices if her own church is telling her that what you're going to do mm. is cause people to mm-hmm. be possessed like how is that yeah. her go-to move and and so i struggle with this juxtaposition all the time when it comes to the warrens and, and all the stories that they tell because she's she's a medium and she's leading seances and doing all the things and then in this movie she's having meetings with priests who apparently like use them to determine who should or shouldn't be exercised or whatever like there's a lot of moments that just don't make sense when it comes to what's being you know what sort of common knowledge about catholic faith and and their practices versus what they're claiming that they do and their involvement in these things i don't know It, it makes it feel very unbelievable yeah i struggle with that because especially coming off the episode of the right uh i just in, there, there are elements that I felt like they wouldn't have on them. I was like, oh, he's got holy water. Okay, well, good for him because this wasn't going to go anywhere without it. But, you know, there's the anointing, right? There's the there's oil that has to be used. Like, And I don't think they're traveling around supernatural style with a trunk full of all this stuff in the event that they have to do it because they wouldn't normally do it, right? I just... Uh, I think you're a hundred percent right. It's like, they got to kind of pick their lane and, and stay in it and not kind of straddle, straddle that, that center line. Um, I actually think this might've been more interesting to me. Had we'd seen the seance, right? I, I think mm. that might've been a, an interesting ending rather than the exorcism. Cause in the end, I'm not even sure the exorcism is what really brings her back. Right. It's, it's that Lorraine is the like husband. Trans- yeah, it's the husband and then Lorraine transferring that memory back to her. It almost has nothing to do with the exorcism, really. They claim that, you know, she spoke other languages and all that kind of stuff. The chair elevated and she was thrown across the room. But I don't know. I, I just don't know. Yeah. It doesn't. It just doesn't add up. Did Carolyn really try to kill two of her daughters in the house? Uh, the answer for this is unequivocally no. There's no evidence that any of that took place. None of the children were present during any of the seance or anything like that, except that Andrea and Cindy, uh, or Andrea claims that she and Cindy were both hiding, but were never known to be there by Carolyn or anyone else involved. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, 
the one who wrote the books and has had the most vocal support of the movies and that kind of stuff, claims that as a child, she witnessed the seance and the possession of her mother in secret and no one ever knew. Because of course she did. Right. Have any of the owners of the home since the parents left experienced any supernatural occurrences? Andrea Perone again asserts in an interview with Tallapalooza Journal that everyone who has lived in the house that we know of has experienced this. Some have left screaming and running out for their lives. The man who, <laughs> this part made me laugh, the man who moved in to begin the restoration of the house when we sold it left screaming without his <laughs> without his car, without yep. his tools, and without his clothing. Was he naked? Why? Why was he naked? <laughs> I mean, I guess if he's living there, sure. <laughs> like, Did he leave the rest of his clothes or did he run out? Uh, yeah. That's the part that made me laugh. He was so scared. Too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he uh speaking of Ghostbusters, maybe he was getting a, a midnight blowy right. from Bathsheba. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He Bring never went <laughs> he never went back to the house and it sat vacant for years. Now current homeowner <laughs> I, thought, I thought you said he sat naked for years. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't yeah, you? It was so traumatizing. I can never wear clothes. The clothes are haunted. Uh <laughs> Current homeowner Norma Sutcliffe states that uh, while she and her husband have possibly experienced some odd occurrences, including doors banging, footsteps, and doors opening in another room, and sounds of talking in another room, uh, even her husband's chair seeming to vibrate at times, she holds that uh, they never jumped to any conclusions over any of the minor experiences and have actually dedicated time to, prov to proving and providing evidence to disprove both Andrea's story and the movie as a whole. So, yeah, yeah I, I thought a lot of this was interesting. Um, I've read a couple of different things and timelines don't really add up to me. There is some stuff about some previous owners prior to the seventies um, that were like, nothing ever happened to us. We were good. And mm -hmm. Lorraine explains that away by the fact that uh, the man who lived there was a, uh, a reverend and his wife. And she was like, well, of course nothing ever happened to them. They were a, res a reverend. That's a little suspect. And I think another article that I read said the house was sold in 2019. So there is an even more current owner right. than, uh, than Norma Sutcliffe and her husband, um, and the current owners are saying, undoubtedly, the place is ridiculously haunted. But if you look into their story a little bit, the, the current owners are paranormal investigators and ghost hunters. And they're like, we bought this on, on purpose. And their whole idea is they want to restore the house and open it for ghost tours and as a museum. So, of course, mm -hmm. they want to perpetuate the idea that it is much more haunted. So it almost seems like you trade off over the last couple of decades, right? Not haunted, super haunted, not haunted super haunted right well, Tim, it, it makes it, perfect it, sense not haunted unless you gain financially from it being haunted in which case it is the most haunted thing that's ever been so haunted it'll haunt your freaking pants off absolutely you'll be haunted until you're naked forever i think it's great how you debunked the whole thing by just saying you could get ordained yeah it's like if they try to make this film in modern times today it would just be a five-minute film he right. would go online He'd get ordained <laughs> yeah. and just be like, that's it. I beat right. you. All good. Well, that solves the problem for any of us buying houses. That's what we were talking about, right? Just like walk in and be like, I am an ordained minister of universallifechurch.com. Right. And <laughs> please excuse yourselves, spirits. Right. 
I'll leave the door open. Don't let it hit you on the like, way. They're like, done. You got this. Yeah. Dang it. They're really catching on. <laughs> he, just hit, he just hits print. <laughs> he's not out of ink. <laughs> Do you even print? Can you just show it on your phone? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you'll uh, scan this QR code, you'll have access to my certificate. Um, do people even use QR codes anymore? Probably not. <laughs> the last point here, there's a there's a major element in this movie where they finally get the evidence they're looking for after the uh oh, my favorite part, the um the 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 ghost debunking, you know, montage setup of like yeah. cameras and all that kind of stuff. I love that scene. Yeah. And and they finally get the evidence they're looking for and they take it to their priest buddy and they're like this lady needs an exorcism today. And the priest is like, "No, we can't do it. She's not Catholic. This will have to come straight from the Vatican." blah 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 blah. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, "Is that true?" That would be wild. Can you imagine walking in and being like, dude, I think this person's legit possessed. And it's, the one person it, who can help is like, yeah, but they don't pay me. So, it's, but it's passable, right? Because sure. when, yeah, cause when you can't take communion at, if you're not Catholic. So you can't get married in a Catholic church if you're not Catholic. Right. I'm Catholic and a Catholic church would not marry Carissa and I because she is just general. Or I was Catholic. Um, me but and Alyssa she, too. you know, she was generally she was a you know a non-denominational uh, Christian, and they were like, nope, because oh, and they wanted a letter from the diocese that I belonged to in the D.C. area because they wanted to make sure I was paying somebody. <laughs> Fact, although the church here, I was raised Catholic as well, and the church did. My mom, when she remarried, uh, my dad was not Christian and was raised Mormon, and the priest still mm. did it. <laughs> it was like, interesting. We're good, whatever. Right. Blah blah. <laughs> Okay, so the question is, do you need to be a Catholic for a priest to validate the possession and perform an exorcism? And the answer to this is actually no. According to the Archdiocese of Washington website, anyone, Catholic or non-Catholic, may request the sacrament of the rite of exorcism. The only rule is that the rite must always be performed by a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. So... That's about it. I mean, I don't know. Is there anything we didn't touch on? Any questions that we had? Anything that we wanted to discuss further in terms of the fact I, or fiction? What I want to throw out there is coming to a close on this this October. Uh, God, I can't wait. Where, where on the scale um, would you put this as opposed to the other three movies and or other two movies in terms of how well they did in being based on a true story? Hmm. That's a good question, Tim. Um, I guess you know, Rob can't zero, answer it. He hasn't seen the other ones. Zero being the fourth kind. <laughs> Yo, the fourth right. kind is a hard last place. Right. Um, I think in terms of now, do you do you are you wait, are you asking how well the movies did at selling it being on a based on a true story? Or Ooh. how well or how closely I think it's possible that they're actually true? I ooh. That's a great fundamental question, right? Because everything that the right is based off of happened to a degree. Correct. Right? Right. And we can't even begin to prove whether or not the events that this movie are based on even happened in the first place. I would say this. To answer your question, I would say the fourth kind of absolute last place. I think it does the worst job at everything. It's unbelievably untrue in every aspect, right? Yep. Minus like the bare bones basic idea that people have gone missing before and right. that the and that the <laughs> earth exists and on that earth is a place called Alaska. So right. short of those facts, it is not a true story in any regard. 
I think that this one comes in second place in terms of the the facts. I think it has it hits more notes, right? There was a chick named yeah. Bathsheba. The parents yeah. are real. They lived in this house in Rhode Island. All that stuff for sure. It's based on that concept. I think the right does the best job of staying firmly rooted to the claims that it's asserting, right? Like yes. uh, the priests were all real. The class was real. Uh, the experiences, you know, in terms of him shadowing the exorcist, learning to be an exorcist, all that kind of stuff, real. Where it was fake was, you know, the the priest becoming possessed, all that kind of stuff. That was your cinematic stuff. And they all have that. But I think the right did the best job at staying, quote, true to the real story. Yeah. I think in terms of convincing me that it's true, the same order. I think the fourth yeah. kind garbage, this one less so, and the right more so because I think it asserted less. It made yeah. less lofty claims. Um, yep. I, I think in terms of which movie was the most fun, I think the only switch would be that this one would be first place, uh, the right would be second place, and then fourth kind would be last. I think as a horror movie and, and just a general... If you're, if you're looking to watch something and enjoy it and be creeped out, this one's just a better movie. I think the right yes. is like the better documentary, like you know, for lack yeah. of a of, a, of another phrase. It's yeah, not a documentary, but I'm just yeah. saying. I 100% would agree with that for sure. Yep. Rob, what did you think? I know you don't have the insight for the other films, but like, what did you think about this one in terms of believability and based on true story claims? I mean, I. I definitely did not delve into the history um, prior to watching this. Um, I'm actually just learning about a lot of this stuff as you're talking about it. But I do have a high respect for the decisions that the filmmakers made, that they structured this as real, they approached it, they wanted us to believe that. So I think they did a good job of taking these fragments of, if you want to call it, reality or what, what may have really happened and then crafting a story that may or the rest of it may or may not have actually happened. But um, it got, I think it probably did end up getting a fair number of viewers to buy in and feel that it was, there was, you know, it, this was based on some enough reality that they could believe it. Was it, when you were watching it, was it plausible enough to you that it would, is this the kind of movie that would make Rob say, huh, I wonder if that's true, and open up Google? I'm not saying that's what you did, but did they do enough yeah, to maybe no, have no, you do no, that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, going back into my, we were talking about, was I aware of this movie in this cinematic universe? And years ago, I was actually, um, I saw the title sequence for it. And, I, you know, the end credits, actually, with the photographs. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just a super clever thing. And that was the first thing I had ever seen about this movie. And then they did the sequel, Annabelle. And I started to go, okay, what is this? Why is this such a phenomenon suddenly? And I did look into the history at that point. Um, if I had watched this fresh, would I have done the same thing? I think so. Yeah, I think it's. I think this is a huge market. Obviously, I mean, they keep making these movies. There are people that are just so intrigued by this whole thing, and and there's people that want to believe in the afterlife, and and, and if there is a heaven, then there must be a hell, and you know what comes of it. And, and I think they did a really good job of pushing this narrative and and adding enough plausibility i don't subscribe to you know demons and ghosts and stuff like that but you know plausibility into who the warrens were and what they practice and uh what there, there was a, at least some elements of this that could have happened sure 
I dig that. All right, let's go around the table and uh, the virtual table. We're socially distanced. Let's go around and give it any final thought and and a final rating. We do a uh, Rob. We do a scale of uh, one to ten. So let's. Uh, we'll start with Tim. Tim, any final thoughts and your rating? I mean, I guess it's obvious then that this movie did. <laughs> not keep my attention unfortunately dude and i still I you missed parts of it. you missed huge uh, parts and not just, just one like two I, or three I, i'm baffled because i you know i really sat down into this i had you know the i had it on the surround i had you know the backlights going i was really sunk in and ready to relax and enjoy this movie and i clearly missed parts of it i think if you're looking for for something in this realm you could do a whole lot worse and i'm not really sure really what's on the better end of a of a movie like this if you want to get into a franchise and you want to get onto some connected stuff i think you can start here and and feel good about it um you know one of the things i've done in the past is is do a you know a halloween October recap and you know did all Friday the 13th and did all Halloween's so if you wanted to sit in and sink into this and do a whole you know next Halloween do the the, the Annabelle conjuring universe with all the movies then I think yeah, absolutely you, you could get into that I mean I think I'd go five I think it's middle of the road for me um, you know I just enough of it in the early was was predictable enough that um, you know I could have skipped to the end and, and felt good about it <laughs> and, and understood you know that's that's where I get all the new stuff I like the i could have done i think that's exactly what you did, did tim it's a hundred percent what you did apparently i checked out uh, so i go five i think i go five out of ten okay do you tim do you think it would be a six if you had seen the middle <laughs> <No>. <laughs> all right rob what about you man oh man i, I hate creating movies i do because it's like I've tried to make movies and I suck at it, you know, so <laughs> I have a, I have a healthy respect for the people that do this stuff. And I feel like they did a very admirable job. You know, they designed a path, they stuck to it. They, they packaged this thing really well. Um, you know, to give it a grade, I don't know. I mean, was it Schindler's list? No, it wasn't. Was it, was it Jaws? No, it wasn't. It wasn't Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, but it also wasn't whatever the, the worst movie you can think of. It wasn't that either. Um, so I, anywhere between a six and an eight. I know that's kind of high, but they did a good job. Yeah. And I like that point of view. And I think that's something that's usually lost when we're looking at things critically. Right. And that's this is just sort of the nature of it. And those of us critique harder that which we cannot do ourselves. <laughs> So, because I too am a failed filmmaker, I <laughs> I think yeah, um, sure, we are. I dig everything everyone's saying. For me, I thought just like I said at the at the opening, I think the movie is fun. I think it achieves what it sets out to achieve. Yeah. You know, I think it delivers what it promises. If you want to get into the details as to what's true and what isn't, if that's really going to be your framework for judging the movie as a whole, then why are you watching movies, right? You know, and yeah. And I think we looked at it hoping to sort of investigate things a little bit further and see just how true they are. It doesn't detract from the movie itself. And I think if you're looking at it purely through that lens, it's a blast. It, it does what you want it to do. It's creepy in just the right spots. Uh, you know, I could have done with a little bit more finesse. I could have done with a little bit more zhuzhing around the edges. But, mm -hmm. you know, exactly like what Rob is saying, I think, you know, beginning to end, it's a solid narrative that would have been awesome 
given just a little bit more attention to a few areas. That might be the weakest point of it, but even that is strong enough that it's, yeah. you know, it's at its lowest point, it's not the basement um, yeah. hidden behind a bunch of boards. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think at its best, it's a, it's a quality movie. And I, and I stand firm in the sense that like when I saw this the very first time, I didn't have the film background. I hadn't done all that stuff. And I watched it purely as a fan of horror movies looking for a, a creep, you know, looking to get creeped out and have a good time. Yeah. And it delivered. And this movie has stuck with me. I bought it when it came out. And so I think everybody else in that boat is going to feel similarly. You know, the acting is strong. Patrick Wilson. I mean, say what you want about the characters that they're portraying or the people they're portraying. But Patrick Wilson is Ed Warren and uh, Vera Farmiga as uh, Lorraine Warren are solid, solid cast and and deliver. And and even Ron Livingston and Lily Taylor are fantastic as the parent family. And you you know you have some solid cast. You've got Mackenzie Foy and. Um, Joey King as young actors coming up playing two of the daughters. Mm -hmm. So this is a really solid cast and they and they do a great job. And again with a production team so steeped in the genre, it it delivers, man. I think it's fun and I think it's a blast. And if nothing else, you will dive into the history of these movies if you're curious. If you're trying to debunk it, you will at least hear even more stories that are if nothing else, fun ghost stories, right? Yeah. They will creep you out. You dive into the Annabelle stuff or the Enfield Poltergeist and some of the other things that they've done. It can send you down some rabbit holes that are just as fulfilling as what yeah. I think this movie does. I give this movie a 7 out of 10. I think it, it really mm. stuck with me then okay. and it stuck with me still now. We can be critical about it and I think that's a blast, but it delivers, man, and, and it was a lot I of fun. I agree with everything you said. I mean, the more I think about it, I, you know, like I said, I'm not really deep into horror genre but it kind of it feels like this is kind of like the the people that would watch star trek i'm a trekkie i love star trek now are those movies good no they're they're not great but i love them they're so much fun and and i had that same kind of fun when i watched this that's spot on all right guys well i think that wraps up another one so yeah. um Thank you all for joining us. As always, you can hit us up on Instagram, Pause Reviews. You can get us at the website, pausereviews.com. Listen to this podcast and all the other podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and they possess your ear holes. Um, <laughs> this also wraps up our October month of horror. Thank God. This has been very taxing. You know, stay tuned. Next month, we get back to our normal routine for the month of November with stuff that isn't horror. Tim, thank you for joining us. And Rob, huge thank you to you. We had a blast, man. And I yeah, hope man. that you, yeah, uh, had a blast. I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Tim, Frank, thank you so much, guys. Totally. So much fun with us. It was awesome. Fantastic. I love it when a plan comes together. All right, guys. <laughs> as always, thanks for joining. And we will catch you next week on the next one. I'm your boy Frank. This is Tim. I'm Rob. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you when we see you. Peace. <laughs>